What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining me here for this Tuesday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. We are a Sports Ethos presentation, of course, and I'm your host, Joe Orico. You can find me over on Twitter at JoeOrico99 and also at EthosFantasyBB. You get all of our new content over there. That's podcasts, articles, polls, news and notes. Everything gets shared out at EthosFantasyBB. Make sure you're giving us a follow over there. And if you're not somebody who uses social media or even if you are, go ahead and check out SportsEthos.com. We're going to be dropping a lot of fantasy baseball content there over the next couple months. Our draft guide is fully planned out. Hopefully, we're going to be releasing. I'm setting a tentative date for Valentine's Day. It'll be somewhere around the 14th of February, roughly. I'm not going to say for sure that'll be the day, but that's what we're aiming for the second week, end of the second week of February. So be on the lookout there. Our draft guide is going to be filled with rankings, projections. We're going to have profiles of starting pitchers, relief pitchers. We're going to have sleepers, busts, the ideal way to build your draft. A ton of fun content is going to be coming out there. It will, of course, be shared out on Twitter, but sportsethos.com is the original source there. Now, today we're going to be going through an article that just got published about a half an hour ago. It was great to get it out to the public. We've been looking forward to this one for a few weeks since I had the idea. I assembled six different experts from around the fantasy baseball world. They are experts. I know some people don't like that word, but these people have been around for a long time doing this for either for their careers or as a part-time gig for a very, very long time. These people are very knowledgeable. That's why I assembled them to talk about the hardest players to rank in 2024. We've got six different guests. We're going to talk about them and their picks here on the show. I also contributed with a paragraph on each, the hardest player, the position player, and pitcher to rank this season. So we got 14 responses, 14 names total, and they're all unique names. Of the six people I asked, they all gave me unique names, and I picked two different ones that were not included as well because they are incredibly difficult players to rank. There are so many difficult players to rank, and that kind of goes you know, to show once you read the article. There are just so many different players with so many different problems, and there are you know, good problems to have in terms of ranking a player should he be a third rounder or a second rounder. There's also some tricky conundrums that we get into uh, with the whole process of ranking players. So we're going to get into that now. I really appreciate everybody who was able to take part in this. And if you haven't already seen it, go to sportsethos.com, or you can check it out on my Twitter. I just tweeted that one out uh, about 3.30 p.m. Eastern time today on Tuesday. So go and check that one out. It's going to be shared out uh, over the next couple days as well. But let's get into it. Let's start talking about the hardest players to rank I'm going to talk about. I'm going to read what these people, what these experts wrote, and we're going to talk about it a little bit as well. So Mike Kurland was the first contributing guest that we have here. He's recently started his own website, MLBPlayingTime.com, where he kind of does what Roster Resource does, but even a more advanced point of view. Uh, he gives you a projected right-handed and a left-handed hitting lineup, or I should say the lineup against left-handed and right-handed pitchers, because uh, that will vary, of course. He also gives you notes. It's a great website. I've kind of started using it more so than Roster Resource since Mike launched. He's also a contributor with The Athletic and Fantasy Pros. And Mike, for his position player, wrote Wyatt Langford. And he says, the upside is through the roof, but the lack of clarity in terms of projectable playing time makes it difficult to buy in fully. Uh, he was drafted in 2023 and has combined 80 plate appearances over 17 games between AA and AAA. Definitely hear what Mike's saying. Mike uh, Wyatt Langford is on some people's list the number one prospect in all of baseball, even ahead of Jackson Holiday. But we're kind of hoping for a little bit too much maybe in redraft leagues, considering he's going like the 120 to 130 range. I definitely hear where Mike is coming from. I says, there's a lot to like in the tools and being a part of that Texas lineup, but can we really bank on playing time being there? If he does break camp, how long is the leash before being sent down if he struggles? 
And he makes the comparison to Jordan Walker, you know, very highly touted prospect comes into the year. We're expecting big things and, you know, doesn't last the whole season in the majors goes up and down. Jordan Walker, I thought was very good last year, but from a fantasy point of view, it's kind of a bad investment considering what you actually ended up getting. So very good comp there with Wyatt Langford and Jordan Walker. It could be a very similar situation. Langford could be a top 100 player this year. He could also very easily, very easily finish outside of the top 250 or 300 players. So there is a lot of variance there. I like the pick of Wyatt Langford for sure. On the pitching side, he picked Tariq Skubal. We've talked a lot about Tariq Skubal, and from Mike's perspective, Tariq Skubal has to be the most difficult to rank. Elite finish with flashy numbers. However, it's just one small sample, and he had a fantastic schedule to take advantage of. It's true. If you look down the stretch at Tariq Skubal's opponents, a lot of central, a lot of uh, Royals and White Sox, teams that are not really you know the greatest competition so we're drafting Tariq Skubal as a fourth rounder fifth rounder sometimes even as high as the third round when we're basing it off of half a season of you know maybe some subpar opponents he was facing as well um, you can argue he did what he was supposed to do against them the success also came with tangible changes in the profile making it more believable as well the concern that Mike has and a lot of people have is how much stock can we put into the half a season worth of numbers I think the early draft cost that you're paying is going to preclude a lot of people from getting a Tariq Skubal share. Unless you're playing in a really shallow league, if it's a 10-team league and you're, all right, there's a lot of replacement level value and it's not costing me a third or a fourth, it's a fifth or a sixth at that point, that's where I could see taking Tariq Skubal. Uh, I think in a lot of cases I'm going to be out, though. I have to kind of agree with Mike here. It's a very challenging um, player to buy into, for my opinion, just based on, first of all, he plays for not a good team. Detroit's not a good team. They have changed the dimensions at Comerica Park, and I don't you know a lot of people haven't talked about this too much because there's only one year worth of sample size for it, but they brought the walls in at Comerica, and instead of being like the 27th, 28th, 30th ranked park in a lot of the stat cast park factors, Comerica's now like 21, 22, which it's still more on the pitcher-friendly side, but Comerica is no longer the pitcher haven that it once was, in my opinion. It's still you know, favorable, but not nearly as favorable as it once was. Just a number of factors with Tariq Skubal that kind of make me a little bit hesitant to buy in, especially at his price. So appreciate Mike's input there, and I definitely agree on both fronts. These are very difficult players to rank. Next up, Paul Spohr from Fangraphs, who's been on this show many, many times. He picked two position, or excuse me, he picked two pitchers and one position player. He went above and beyond here, and he picked Yoshinobu Yamamoto and Tyler Glass now. It's hard to argue. These guys are both incredibly difficult uh, to rank. And according to Paul, these might be the most obvious answers, but I'm going to make some. I'm not going to make something up for the sake of originality. He says it has to be between these two new Dodgers. Yamamoto should theoretically be easier to rank with a truly brilliant track record in Japan and coming over at age 25, but of course transitioning to Major League Baseball for one of the more popular teams with a massive contract. The biggest contract ever signed by a pitcher is going to be a lot of pressure. The market is also really excited. Top 50 ADP for Yamamoto. If you want in on him, you really have to pay. And it's it's great point by Paul. You know, it should transfer over very well. He was elite as it gets in Japan. But, of course, the level in Japan is probably roughly somewhere around AAA, maybe higher than you want to call it, like quad A or whatever. It's not quite major league level competition. So, Expecting him to be a one-for-one one translation to his uh, Japanese stats to what he'll do in the States is probably not likely. But then again, he very easily could translate, You know, even if it's like 90% of what he did. We just saw Kodai Senga come over, who is, by all accounts, nowhere near as good as Yamamoto, and he finished with a sub-3 ERA in his first season. So that's, I think, what has people dreaming on Yoshinobu Yamamoto is that, well, he could be a top-five, top-three pitcher. Some people are even saying, well, he could 
hypothetically be the number one pitcher in all of fantasy. I think we need to pump the brakes a little bit, but that kind of goes to show the potential upside and the perceived upside that drafters have is that Yamamoto could win you your league in the fourth round. And that's where he's generally going. It's expensive to pay up that price. And it's also kind of tricky to actually put him in rankings. I have him right now as my number 12 SP. I feel pretty good about it, but again, it's, it could be, you could have him at seven, you could have him at 24. And I wouldn't really argue with you either way. He's a very, very tricky player to rank. And Tyler Glass now is no different. You know, Paul writes here with Glass now is the premise of what if he's one of the best pitchers in baseball on a per inning basis, but he's thrown 388 total innings pitched in that time since 2018. And there are eight pitchers. I didn't realize this. And I looked it up after I read about Paul writing it here. Uh, there are eight pitchers who've thrown more innings in just 2022 and 2023 combined, more than Glasnow has thrown since 2018. So his move to Los Angeles is probably a bit of a plus, but it doesn't greatly improve his outlook. According to Paul, the Rays are also excellent at handling pitchers, but the excitement of him building on his career high of 120 innings pitched. And again, that number is kind of shockingly low. The career high is 120, and now he's going as a top 40 pick. I think that we're probably probably playing with fire a little bit with Glass now. And that's somebody, you know, I haven't ranked as my number 10 starting pitcher. But again, if you wanted to rank Tyler Glass now as your number 3 SP, or if you wanted to have him as your number 25 SP, there's really no argument I'd be able to give you one way or the other. He's an almost impossible player to rank. A full season of Glass now is almost guaranteed to be a top 5 pitcher. But we could also see 32 innings of glass now. And at that point, then it's a total waste. But we just really have no idea. I think Paul is spot on with these two pitchers. They're very, very tricky to rank. And now the poster boy, the cover of the article I used as the picture is Ellie Dela Cruz. Again, according to Paul, not a super unique answer, but I have agonized over ranking Eli Dela Cruz. Paul, you are not alone there. The market is remarkably bullish on him with a 22 fall in winter ADP. And it hasn't really moved. We've talked about this uh, as well on yesterday's show. On the NFBC, it hasn't really moved. Now that we have Yahoo and CBS leagues opening up, you might be able to get him cheaper. But if you are somebody like myself who plays mostly in the NFBC, you're probably not getting much Ellie Dela Cruz at that price. He's a better fantasy player than real-life player, which I think is also another one that's kind of troubling. He had an 84 WRC plus last season. For those who are unfamiliar, that means essentially he was 16% below league average as a hitter. Now, he had 13 homers and 35 stolen bases in under 100 games, 427 plate appearances. It's very easy to see how Ellie Dela Cruz could finish as a first-round player. But, and this is these are Paul's words, so go get mad at Paul for this, not for me. Are we really going to pay a top 25 pick for the Javier Baez starter pack? It's a damn good point. He could easily be somebody who gives you that kind of Baez-type season, probably more steals than Javi did. But it's a very good comp. He could very, very easily finish out as a 233rd ranked player with a 207 batting average, 28 steals, and 13 home or something. You know, it's not necessarily uh, foolproof. In fact, it's kind of the opposite of foolproof with Ellie. You could get fooled very easily, take him at the end of the first, beginning of the second round, because his minimum pick on the NFBC is that of a first rounder. It, I'm going to just double check here and see if it might even have gotten lower since the last time I've checked this, but I believe the minimum pick all of draft season for Ellie Dela Cruz is number 10. He has gone in the first round of drafts this year. It's a little bit crazy, I think, to be paying that kind of price for Ellie. Uh, I agree with Paul that he's not somebody that's going to be easy to rank because if he is healthy for the whole year, you're getting a stupid season out of him, probably 25 homers and 50-plus steals, but again... Are we going to see him get sent down to AAA if he doesn't start out of the gate hot? 
They have a lot of infield options. They brought in Candelario, which makes things a little bit more confusing there as well. So there's not a guaranteed path to full-time playing time unless he is amazing. And there's a good chance he is amazing, but it's not set in stone that we are going to see Ellie Dela Cruz just come out and smash. And that second-round price, you kind of need him to smash. Not kind of. You need him to smash or else it's a very bad investment. So absolutely agree that Ellie is one of the toughest, if not the toughest player to rank that we're going to talk about all day. Now we have Sarah Sanchez. Sarah Sanchez has been on the show several times here, and she is a contributor for many different places. Um, most notably, probably Bleed Cubby Blue, where she talks about the Chicago Cubs. It's SB Nation's Chicago Cubs website. She also contributes to Baseball HQ, Pitcher List, and the Fans for Sports Network. Sarah does tons of work. She does great work as well. The position player that she highlighted was Vaughn Grissom. Vaughn Grissom is going to be playing. He's going to be getting the everyday second base role. According to Craig Breslow, who's the baseball operations president for the Red Sox, he's playing every day. He's somebody that put up, uh, in his first taste of the majors, a 291, 353, 440 slash line, a 121 WRC+. In only 156 at-bats, he hit five homers and stole five bases. Very easily looked like he could go 2020 in a full season. He kind of looked like he was going to just do what Michael Harris did at the end of 2022. He was another guy who came up and had a very similar type of fantasy profile, good high batting average, decent power speed mix. And then in 2023, we saw Grissom have 80 plate appearances, zero home runs, zero stolen bases. They gave the job to Orlando Arcia. He was incredibly tricky last season. I missed on him last season thinking he was going to be great. Now you're getting him at a pretty reasonable dip. And this does make him kind of tricky to figure out as well, because now you're getting him at a price generally outside of the top 200. Uh, his ADP in December was 240 uh, in the range of 179 and 296. So even drafters there have a big range of more than 100 picks on him. No one really knows if Von Grissom is going to be able to play a whole season, give you 2020 production, or if he's going to start out the year so poorly on defense, which was really the main concern with Grissom. It was never offensively. It was where do you put him in the field? But being a second baseman, I feel like he's probably going to be safer there than he would have been in a short or in the outfield. It's a fairly low-key position among infielders anyway. You're not asked to do nearly as much as a, as a shortstop or a third baseman. I think that he can probably succeed as a second baseman, but we also do have that, well, look at 2023, zero and zero in the homers and steals. So there is definitely risk with Vaughn Grissom. As much as I like him and I've drafted him a couple times, he's not without his risk, and he is definitely a very tricky player to rank this year. Sarah went with another Boston Red Sox. Oh, actually, you know what? I misspoke. <laughs> he's not a Boston Red Sox. He was actually traded for Vaughn Grissom. I, my brain is all over the place. Chris Sale. Chris Sale, my brain still hasn't transferred the fact that he is now an Atlanta Brave. And it's funny that he actually was traded for Von Grissom. These two are very, very tricky players to rank. Chris Sale has been one of the best pitchers in baseball for the last decade. It's just a matter of if he's actually going to be out on the field at all. Now, from Sarah's writing, he should shift as he moves from Fenway Park, which is a fairly hitter-friendly park, to now Truist Park in Atlanta, where it's pretty neutral, little hitter-friendly for homers, but pretty neutral overall. Ballpark changed overall, just kind of a different ballpark and staff and everything kind of changing for Chris Sale could be the fresh start that he needs. Now, production-wise, he's been pretty good. It's been a matter of staying healthy, and that's something that Sarah touches on as well. It's You can't really bank on him um, for more than 100 or so innings until maybe he's able to do it again, and that's the thing with Chris Sale. If he's able to throw you 150, 160 innings, similarly to Glass now without the same kind of hype as he used to have anymore, he could give you that kind of season. It's not going to be the same level as Glass now, but the skills are still there of like a 30% strikeout rate. Uh, you know, he's projected for a 374 ERA from Steamer. 
uh, you know, 28% strikeout rate is what he's projected for. I mean, uh, he's been a 30% guy, 28-30. You could see him getting anywhere in that range. It's just really a matter of, is he going to be healthy? Is Chris Sale going to be healthy? And that's what makes him, for me, so hard to rank. And Sarah mentioned the, you know, the different injuries that he's had here. It all contributes to the fact that, you know, Chris Sale is probably somebody that's a little bit too risky almost to draft if you're just playing in one league this year. If you're playing in 10, 12, 15 leagues like us degenerates, then you can take one or two Chris Sale shares and hope it pans out. But for the like a lot of you guys playing in your one or two leagues, Chris Sale is probably somebody that's a little bit too risky to take. Considering the ADP, it's 154 right now. Minimum pick of 126 since the trade. He'll probably go up even a little bit more. He's tricky to rank, but he's also, I think, easy to fade. Um, just based on the history of Chris Sale. I don't know if I'll put him in my top 25, 30 SPs. Probably not, but realistically speaking, Chris Sale could get there if he gives you 130, 140 innings. The win upside alone in Atlanta could see him get 12 wins in 20 starts. It's just a matter of if he's actually going to be able to you know, build on what was a little bit of a healthier year last year and actually be able to carry that over. So great picks. Again, Chris Sale and Vaughn Grissom are both very, very polarizing players this year. Next up, Mike Carter from Fantrax. He's also the host of the Fantasy Baseball Beat podcast. Mike has been one of the more frequent guests on the show here. I'm sure you guys have heard him. He's done our White Sox preview last year. He's going to do it again this year. Uh, I haven't even talked to Mike about that, actually, but we'll get that sorted out uh, for a White Sox preview. He's a great friend. He's somebody who's coming on the show very regularly over the last couple of years. And he wrote, first off, about Matt McClain. Matt McClain was amazing last season if you picked him up he gave you 16 homers 14 stolen bases in a 290 batting average in 403 plate appearances it was really really great now he also had that dual eligibility of second and short and he's only 23 years old now what mike writes about is that his expected batting average was 34 points lower than what he actually had strike percentage of 28 and a half a 16th percentile in major league baseball and he had a very high unsustainable 385 batting average on balls and play he also had an injury that ended the year it was a serious oblique strain, and he struggled in the second half a little bit prior to that with an increase in strikeouts. In July and August, 33% strikeout rate. So you can project, and again, these are Mike's words, you can project, or you can't just project he's going to hit 20 homers and steal 20 bases by extrapolating what he did last year. Regression is kind of a monster, and you could see that happen for not just him, but in terms of the Reds as a whole. They kind of outperformed a little bit last year. Same thing you could say for Baltimore. Are they going to be able to be the same team they were last year when they kind of exceeded expectations? Guys like Matt McClain, Ellie De La Cruz are going to be a huge factor there. But Matt McClain is in a situation where it's a very crowded infield. We mentioned Candelario. They also have Strand. They have India. They have Marte. Of course, Cruz is in there. And, you know, Mike's analysis says that if that strikeout rate is that high and he's hitting 250 or below, then McLean might end up back in AAA. It's hard to argue that point as much as he could smash and be a 25-25 guy who hits 280 for you. Great lineup that he's at the top of. Could just as easily end up as kind of a second half last year of Ellie. Not to the same extent, different profiles, but to the point where he's either A, not even on the roster, or B, not fantasy startable because of the production that he's given you. So I'd have to agree, Matt McLean is somebody I haven't drafted this year. He's tricky to figure out because that upside is so high, but the downside is just so low as well. It's kind of the case for a few of these uh, players in Cincinnati's lineup. Noel B. Marte, Christian Encarnacion, Strand, you can make very similar arguments for. The upside is stupid high. The downside is stupid low. On the pitching side, Mike picked Blake Snell. Blake Snell, and he says, full disclosure, he's always had difficulty projecting him. Last year, 14-9 and of the 225 ERA, 234 strikeouts. 
but it also came with some kind of concerning things as well. If you just look at April, and he did fix this, but in April he was 0-3, he had a 593 ERA, nearly a two whip. Now, that's pretty much unstartable, and then from that point on, he was pretty much unhittable, unscorable uh, over the second half of the season. Blake Snell was ridiculous. Now, here's where Mike is struggling, the expected ERA, which is not perfect, but it still is something that you got to look at. Um, I don't think any of the expected periphery stats are perfect, but using them all together, you do get a good idea of if a pitcher has overperformed or not. His expected ERA was 3.79. It's a run and a half higher than his actual ERA. The 13 and a half walk rate is awful. It was the worst in baseball. And, you know, I think Blake Snell is just one of those really, really risky profiles in general to buy into health-wise and also performance-wise. If he's going to be able to... Is he able to? Uh, yeah, I'm mumbling my words here. Is he going to be able to overcome a massively high walk rate to have a sub three ERA again? And is he going to be able to throw 170 plus innings in the two years where he's thrown 180 plus innings? He's won the Cy Young. That's just not something that you can really con- expect to continue at that pace. Is he going to win Cy Youngs every year he plays a full season? No. Is he going to be able to strand as many batters as he did last year, which was about 86 percent? Probably not. There's a lot of factors that go into me kind of fading Blake Snell, but you can also look at the other side of that coin. Blake Snell did just win the Cy Young. Whatever the expected numbers just say, he was able to go and outperform them for the majority of the year. I think you will eventually, that those numbers will eventually catch up with Snell and anybody who's outperforming them to that extent, especially with the walk rate where it is. I just don't see him being a great investment where he's going in the 60s. But then again, Blake Snell was just the top five pitcher in fantasy, so he could very easily finish there again. All great reasons by Mike here why he is one of the trickiest players to rank. If you're banking on him to be your ace, it's just it's just not really probably going to work out for you. Maybe it does, but I think at the end of the day, it's very risky to take him as your number one starter. You probably want him as your number two at least. And where he's going in drafts, that's kind of tricky. You need to go very early starter, go for hitters for a couple rounds, and then go for Snell. I just think that builds are a lot easier to, to come by, your draft builds, without having Blake Snell in there. I think that he adds a, a layer of heartache to the whole thing of, you know, you start him, but is he going to walk seven batters today? You don't even know where he's pitching yet. We There's a lot still that you got to worry about with Blake Snell, and I agree. Uh, he is one of the trickiest pitchers to rank this year. I don't know if I'm going to have him in my top 20. Likely I won't, but you could, very, you, know, you could also look at me and say you're absolutely nuts to not have him in your top 20. That's where the conundrum comes from. Let's move on to Ben Tidd. Ben is the newest contributor at Sports Ethos. I think he's the newest. Actually, he's probably not the newest. There's been a couple of people that have come on since, but Ben is one of the newest contributors here at Sports Ethos. He is going to be doing starting pitcher stuff for us this season. Our draft guide, he is going to be doing starting pitcher profiles, and he'll be handling starting pitcher fab articles in season. Now, this is his debut, his first article, and he is talking about Lane Thomas as being one of the trickier players to rank this season. Now, he was going around pick 300 last year, and he ended up giving you 28 homers, 20 steals, 101 runs, 86 ribbies, and a pretty decent 268 batting average as well. But there is a lot of concern with Lane Thomas, and Ben really breaks it down here. The way that he performs versus lefties versus righties is vastly different. 883 OPS versus lefties, 695 versus right-handers for the career. This past season, 950 and 722 respectively. Is he a guy that's going to be more of a platoon bat? It's definitely possible. I know that he just had an amazing year, but is he somebody that they want to be throwing out there regardless of the outcome, regardless of who's pitching on the other side? He may end up, and I don't expect this, but there's a chance that he does end up in more of a platoon. Ben lays out so many reasons to worry here. 
And one of the big reasons is his breakout season was at age 28. That's not something you typically see out of the blue. Age 28, you just blow up all of a sudden. 14 of his homers were in May and in June, and the other months of the season he combined for only 13, so he was kind of concentrated on a little bit of a hot run that he had there. There's a lot really not to like with Lane Thomas. Uh, For me, more so than polarizing, he's just somebody that I'm out on. I just don't want him on my teams this year. Bad lineup around him. He played out of his shoes last year. Is he going to be able to do that again? I just think that there's a lot of concern with him. He needs to be a volume guy. You know, Ben points this out. He needs to give you 650 or so plate appearances to be able to accumulate that volume where he would be worth it. And he's currently like a top 100 pick. Uh, you know, a lot of the time going inside of the top 100 ADP right now, I believe is 97. It's just a, a little bit too high for me. And I agree with Ben that he's probably one of the more polarizing players this year just because, it, you know, what we just saw last year was a top 30 or so fantasy player. But just as easily, he could finish outside of the top 300, and I don't think anybody would be surprised whatsoever. On the pitching side, Ben went with Logan Webb, and this one was very interesting. Logan Webb has always, for me, been viewed, or not always, but the last couple of years, and this year in particular, as somebody who's fairly safe. But if you look at some of the metrics, they're not amazing. His strikeout rate this past season was 22.8, swinging strike rate of 9%. It's not good. Swinging strike rate, you can generally double. It was rule of thumb. Uh, it doesn't always work out this way, but generally you double swinging strike rate, and that's what you can get for like an expected strikeout rate. That's more so in line with like a 20, 19% strikeout rate than it is with 23. It doesn't sound like a big difference, but it really is at that point. Hard hit percentage against him was 46%. There's just a lot of things to not like. The main thing that you like here is the volume, and he points this out as well. He threw 192 innings in 2022, and then he increased that this past season. There's a lot to like. There's a lot to like in terms of the volume, in terms of kind of the safety, but also, to Ben's point, he's kind of very similar to Sandy Alcantara, where, and again, it's kind of similar to Logan, or excuse me, not Logan, to Lane Thomas as well. You need the volume. You can't have Logan Webb pitch, you know, half a season and get that kind of production. Like, we saw Jacob DeGrom a couple years ago. I know it's an extreme example, but Jacob DeGrom threw, what was it, 80 innings, 90 innings, and he was a top 15, top 12 pitcher in fantasy. You're not getting that kind of stability with pretty much anybody. But Logan Webb, if he pitches half a season, there's not a hell of a lot of win upside in San Francisco. There's not really much strikeout upside. You're getting probably good ratios. But there's a lot of risk associated with Logan Webb as your SP1 if he doesn't stay healthy the whole year, which he has, knock on wood, for three seasons. But previous health is not necessarily an indication of future health. So you might get you might get caught with your pants down a little bit here if you take Logan Webb as your starting pitcher number one, which is something I have done, and I don't I don't not like it. Like I'm still going to be doing that here and there. I think you can definitely justify uh, an SP one spot for Logan Webb in the right build, but it does not come without its risks for sure. Let's talk about what Eric Cross wrote in. Eric was just here on the show last week doing our Red Sox preview. You can find his work at FTN Fantasy at Roto Baller and of course hosting the Toolshed Pod. And he wrote about a couple of different players that I definitely agree with are, are very, very challenging. The first one in particular, Jazz Chisholm. There aren't many players in the top 100 with a wider range of potential outcomes in 2024 than Jazz. Now, over his last 624 plate appearances over the last two seasons combined, 624 plate appearances is still, I mean, it's close to a full season. It's not quite there. He has 33 homers and 34 steals. So people are kind of dreaming, and I just took Jazz Chisholm this morning in, in one of my drafts in a 12-team in slow draft. I think I took him at round six. I believe it was the sixth-round pick I took Jazz Chisholm. 
we we don't know what he can do over a full season because we just haven't seen it. But I think we're all dreaming, myself included, on that 30-30 upside. He hasn't shown it though, and I, I sent that out on Twitter this morning. I think this is his year. I, I think this is what he, this is the year where he does what Luis Robert did last season, where he's able to stay healthy and shed that injury-prone tag. But as of right now, he still has that tag. He's still somebody that I have no idea what he is going to look like over the course of a full season if he can stay healthy in the outfield. Overall, he is really tricky. And according to Eric here, his zone contact, overall contact, whiff rates have all trended in the wrong direction over the last two seasons. So you combine the fantasy upside with the real-life kind of skills decline. Jazz Chisholm is a very tricky player to rank, and I've drafted him once now. That's going to be it for me. I'm not taking Jazz Chisholm again. I wanted to have one share in case this is the year where Jazz Chisholm is actually able to stay healthy, and I think it is. I think it will be. We've just seen too many years in a row of freak uh, injuries and stuff. I just don't know that he's actually necessarily injury-prone at his age, I just think we're maybe a little bit too soon to declare that. I think, and I'm maybe hoping here, that he is going to be able to stay healthy and give you a top 50 or top 40 season. Definitely within the range of outcomes. Like Eric said, it, it could be anywhere. He could literally finish outside the top 200, or he could finish as a top 20 player. If he's healthy, he's not going to be outside the top 200, but those injuries are definitely a big concern. And speaking of injuries, the other player that Eric wrote about is Carlos Rodon. Carlos Rodon is one of my darlings this year. I think that we're getting him at a massive discount, and he is massively discounted, like 150 picks from last year, because he was terrible last year. Carlos Rodon had a horrible, horrible season. He was injured. He kept you know, starting his rehab and getting shut down, and it was the arm, and then it was the shoulder, and then it was the back. And it was just everything went wrong for Rodon last year. I'm going to be giving him a pass. Eric's point of view is he has no idea where to rank Rodon. as an arm that was being drafted as a fantasy ace last season. A combo of missed time and poor performance made him one of the biggest busts of 2023. But now in the 175 ADP range, he is definitely intriguing to me. And Eric's positing how much of last season's poor performance, which included massive regressions in strikeout department and quality of contact, was due to him being not 100% healthy. We don't know. We don't know if Rodon was not great last season because it was just naturally time for him to take a step back or if the injuries played a role. Now, the, the, the degree to which he took a step back last year would lead me to believe that this is more so injury-related than just, oh, Rodon just stinks now. But it's definitely a challenging one to get behind. Uh, I know I'm there because I've always been a Rodon guy, and I'm willing to give him a pass. A lot of people are not, and I understand that point of view as well. I have him currently as a top-20 starting pitcher. i probably move him down a little bit, but he's not going to be past the top-25 at worst. I still believe in Rodon. I still think that he can be... Um, you know, a healthy Rodon is still a top five or 10 pitcher in baseball. So we have to see what we're going to get out of him, but that's the whole point of this exercise. He is risky. He is a hard player to figure out if he should be ranked as a top 20 pitcher or not as a top 50 pitcher. There's a wide, wide range with Rodon, and that's why he is one of the trickiest players to rank. Now it's my turn. Now we get to my players, and I picked Michael Harris as my position player. I, I find him really challenging. The skills are there for him to finish as a top 25 player, but... There's also some concerns. He went from 19 homers in 114 games as a rookie to 18 homers in an additional 24 games last season. He lost one homer by playing 24 more games. He did have some injury concerns. We covered this on our Braves preview with Chris Clegg a couple weeks ago. He was hurt. He wasn't fully healthy. So you can give him a bit of a pass there, I guess. I, I, I Not even I guess. You give him a bit of a pass there. Now, you look at the stolen base total as well, 20 in each season, despite the extra games. Not great. You also got to figure or factor in that he is in the bottom third of the Braves order most of the days, most of the time. So his counting stats may suffer. He's probably not a hundred to hundred guy, even though his skill set in the right lineup 
He could very easily be a 100-100 guy or like a 90-90 guy. Even though he's surrounded by an all-star supporting cast, there is definitely risk. He's still a well-rounded player. He still doesn't hurt you in any category. But placing him in my top 10, which is generally where he's going by ADP, is the 11th outfielder by ADP. Placing him anywhere in there does feel a little bit concerning to me. The upside is there. But if he fails to increase his home run and stolen base totals again, it wouldn't shock me. And then you're looking at third-round Michael Harris with a 2020 season with a 280 batting average, which is probably coming with like 60 runs and 65 RBIs or something because he's going to be in the bottom of the order. I know it's a great order. There's only so much you can do from the seven hole, regardless of the order. That's why we talked about earlier in the offseason how even though Teoscar Hernandez went to the Dodgers, he's going to be slotted into the seven hole. Six, seven in the order, it's still a good lineup, but I think it does limit the overall kind of upside you can expect. That's why I think Michael Harris is very difficult to rank. If he is somebody that plays 160 games, I could we could see a 30-30 season from him. I don't think anybody would be really surprised. And he could also hit 300. Like If he gives you 30-30 and 300, yes, it's a very low percentage chance, but it's not crazy to think that he could do that. I'm just worried about the potential bottom side of that as well, which is fewer than 20 homers, fewer than 20 steals, and not a lot of counting stats. So Michael Harris, for me, has been very tricky to nail down. And the pitcher that I chose, if you guys even casually follow me, Zach Eflin. Zach Eflin, I am absolutely over the moon for. He was one of the best pitchers in baseball in 2023. He was third in expected ERA, third in XFIP, fourth in strikeout minus walk rate. The only real concern is the injuries. The injuries are what keep Zach Eflin down the board a little bit. I've had him ranked as my seventh starting pitcher, and now he's number nine for me. And even that, you know, it feels simultaneously too high and too low. Zach Eflin was just a top five pitcher in baseball. He was healthy, pitching for a great team. But we're also looking at a track record that does lead you to believe that maybe there is another injury potentially coming. It's not a lot of arm problems. It's a lot of other weird injuries that he's had. So there is that kind of bonus. It's not a bunch of elbow problems that he's had because that is where you get really, really concerned if it's a ton of arm issues, if it's, you know, elbow, shoulder, etc. But with Zach Eflin, we're looking at, and I'm just pulling up the, the injury history page here, he's had a couple of knee injuries back, a um, couple of blisters back in 2018, but it's not been his arm that's given him grief, which just it does lead me to believe that he can stay healthy. It's not like we're just waiting for a ligament to tear in the elbow or something. He's never missed time with an arm injury. So yes, the knees and the back are important, but it doesn't concern me as much as it possibly could if there were different injuries at play for Eflin. Again, I think that I might be too high on him as a top 10 starting pitcher, but at the same time, I might be too low on him because Zach Eflin's skills last year were pretty unimpeachable. He doesn't walk batters. He pitches for a good team. There's a lot to love, but at the same time, Zach Eflin might not, probably won't give you the same season he did last year, and drafting somebody after their peak year is usually a bad idea. So he's definitely very tricky for me. I could very easily put him in the top 10, he might very easily in a lot of rankings fall outside of the top 25, and it'd be hard to argue there as well. And that is the point of this exercise. I wanted to highlight players who are very tricky to rank, talk about some of their strengths and weaknesses. Now, I've talked about some of the broad points that these excellent, excellent guest writers put into these articles or into this article, into their paragraphs. But I really recommend you go to sportsethos.com and you check it out yourself there as well. I'm going to share in the link to the podcast or not in like the show description probably, but in the actual link to the podcast on social media, I will put the link to the article as well for you guys to go and check out. It's a bit of a behemoth. 
It's about 3,500 words. It's not something you can quickly go through in a minute or two. It will take time, but I promise you it is worth it. Everybody here put in fantastic work, and I want to thank them all again for taking the time to do this. We'll be back tomorrow. We will be talking about probably ATC projections tomorrow. That was today's plan, but we're going to push that one most likely. Again, the, the schedule here does change, which is why I do suggest you guys follow over on social media. Joe Orico 99 and Ethos Fantasy BB. That will keep you updated on all the different things we have going on. But until tomorrow, guys, I hope you have a great night. I hope you enjoy this article. Everybody put a lot of work into it, so go ahead and check it out. But until tomorrow, take care, and we will see you then. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.